This conversation on figuration features Andrew Atwood, Laurel Broughton, Thomas Klasnick, Andrew Kovacs, Jimenez Lai, Anna Niemark, James Tate, and Ellie Ward. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. That is a term I have no idea what it means anymore. I don't know. I really don't know what people, I have no idea what that word means. That means that, that word is used in so many different ways and in opposition to so many different things. I, like that's that's at the other end. Like I go to schools and people use that word. I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. It's always different. I don't know if Anna, if that's the case with you. It's a word that gets used at Syrac a lot, which is where I used to teach and where Anna obviously teaches now. And I have no idea what people are talking about when they use that term. Sometimes I think figure gets assumed to just mean curves or something that has curvature. But I think some. I I think even a. I th I think one could. One can produce figures that are purely orthogonal relationships as well. I, I think I associate figure, figure and and legibility. Those two things have a kind of close relationship to one another for me. I can't. I don't know how to answer that one. I didn't. I, I, I would have. I, I don't. Figuration. I don't really talk about figuration too much. I think there are more qualified people to talk about figuration than myself. Figuration proves to be a polarizing term. Cartoons, characters, symbols, and myths tend to be associated with legibility and instant gratification, and are therefore at odds with the project of abstraction. Here's Anna comparing several of the terms that we have heard today, followed by Andrew, her partner at First Office. All three, the idea of critique, the idea of postmodernism, this term figuration, they're often used as terms, well, they're often used as negative terms, in the negative, meaning... Figuration is used to describe something that's not a field condition, for example. I mean, it, as plain as that, I think. I, I don't know if the term itself has any positive meaning beyond trying to uh, maybe build, build up a discourse that exists beyond the thousand plateaus, build up something that is not about infinity, field condition, automated changes over time or over space, drawings that exceed one million lines. You know, so, so maybe figuration is used to talk about everything other than uh, things that we associate with a kind of sensuality or, you know, emotional project. And I haven't understood it yet in a most positive sense. I, m myself, I'm not sure. I tend to think positively. So it's hard for me to be very clear about these some of these terms that are often used in the negative you know i because they don't mean much to me in their own right they only mean to me something against another movement or against another group of work uh, or projects and i find them all valid i find them all, all interesting the way i understand that term is like shapes that's all i can think about when i think of figure when i think of the term figure figuration and it's probably the only time i use that is with is when i like pair it with postmodern or POMO. So if you were to describe, if, I, if you were to ask me what I thought about the kind of the sort of radical postmodern project through Sam Jacob and let's say UIC, that all that work is sort of, I would describe as postmodern figuration. They're just simply sort of sampling shapes or profiles or silhouettes or a series of terms they use. I think they think of that term as, they think of figuration as a term that's in opposition to something like abstraction. 
And so there's a kind of legibility, a kind of immediacy and understanding what the shape is, and then you're putting them on pages together. Just to, to couple it with the other, the other terms, like for me, it's directly related to at least the term, the, the return to, to POMO or postmodernism as a style. And the way in which it's almost, almost exclusively been done is through figuration or shape making or shape sampling from historical precedents or just sort of recognizable icons like hearts and flowers and for some reason the columns at this slave in house. But outside of just sort of shape making or shape borrowing, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have like a, like a comfortable definition for it. In contrast to First Office's convictions about abstraction, Here's Jimenez on pareidolia and single point perspectives. Pareidolia is this thing where this human quality where we, we tend to recognize faces and bodies on inanimate objects. So, so for example, we're able to see a pile of rock like a mountain and there's suddenly the big bear mountain or something. You know, like we, we come up with names and myths like and we always have for as long as we've been human for maybe the last 150, 200,000 years. I think that's a quality that we, we've, we've been harnessing. So to, to say that karyotids uh, are new, I, I, I don't, yeah, I mean, yes, rel relatively to being 200,000 years old as a species, it's very new uh, because now we have more control over ourselves and more, more uh, higher ability to be rational. I would say uh, being very rational is even newer uh, than, than wanting figuration. And so maybe my desire for figuration is my inability to suppress my, my animal instincts. And I should be more rational. Recently, I've, I've also been having uh, second thoughts on single point perspectives. And I think about, so when I recently went to Chicago uh, and went to the post office uh, to see Brian, Brandy Roberts' uh, performance, uh, I had noticed something that I, had, well, I, I didn't used to think about with Mies, which is the construction of physical single point perspective. Like no matter where you went, the vanishing point kind of follows you. Because of the light, uh, the consistency of the light, because of the consistency, consistency of the tiles or the grid. And so let's say that the newer selves or the newer awareness as a species uh, would, would probably head towards more rationalism and less animalism. And uh, I, I'm a failing uh, kind of rational man which is why I think I do the kind of work I do. And which is also why I'm attracted to people who also fail, such as, you know, Oscar Niemeyer. Like, I think that guy, uh, being a sensual uh, Brazilian person, uh, fails to be rational, and which is why that's, that's attractive to me. Now we'll hear from Elia and Thomas. I mean, again, I don't know if I can explain where my interest comes from. It might just come from having a background in, in other things. I know for me it's just more formal. It's kind of more like when I, the way I would approach a design for anything is kind of narrative based. Like I, there's a story about, be about anything. It could be about the, the place, it could be about a history, it could be about use. It could just be complete, you know, kind of completely fantastical. But that, the translation of that kind of narrative into a form is something I'm really, really interested in. And that becomes figurative. Obviously, it's not always human face, but it's, it's definitely figural. We asked if this means that the narrative should be legible in the architecture. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I mean, I, you know, I love it when it's really obvious as well. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not... You like the Hollywood anything. sign, don't you? 
I love Hollywood science. You know, I'm thinking of the, what is it, the Longaberger basket company, you know, that the, their office, they just built it like a fucking basket. And, I, you know, I just love, I love that. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of stuff that just brings a smile to my face. And I know it, like, it also makes a lot of other people really angry and they hate stuff like that, which, you know, I think is even funnier. People, I don't know, people like things to be a bit mm. complicated and unattainable I think sometimes I, I really like ideas that you can you can see straight away and just enjoy straight away like anyone can you know mm. anyone can you don't have to be some highfalutin architect I mean I, w- I would admit that there's been a fair amount of uh, shape making in some of the, the work I've done in the past and I think it's intentionally in a sense uh, as you describe in a sense making a building communicate something or into a readable piece like you know tradition of mannerism and maybe lots of the work I've done to date has involved using MDF so cutting it into a shape is one way of giving it an ability to say something more but equally I think you could try and say things without them necessarily being figurative or shape based you know it could be through the way you combine different material or even a different technology. I would say that there has been an increase maybe in the use of the figure. Maybe there's also a technological thing as well with the ease with which people can now access you know, the CNC milling of stuff that you can actually translate things that you've drawn into a figurative shape more easily maybe than you, you could previously. Cutting, cutting shapes out of... MDF though is is still it's still really two dimensional, isn't it? It's like mm. taking a taking a shape of something and actually turning it into a graphic almost. Mm. I mean, I, I find myself doing a lot of that, but really only because I I feel kind of limited with materials and stuff mm. sometimes. And I always I always think, oh god, you know, I'm being a graphic designer again. I'm not being an architect. I'm being a graphic yeah. designer. Mm. Do a lot of that, but figural is more than a three D slice of a two D slice of something isn't it it's, it's like it's the duck isn't it it's mm-hmm. you know it's like it's the shape that looks like mm. the thing you know that, that it is whatever, whatever it is let's jump to james who's expanding on this conversation of legibility and the digital tools that architects use today i think identity and legibility of the figure i think is something that a lot of people are questioning but then also the tool rhino as a tool and its relationship to, to curves. We have a very different relationship, I think, to, to curves and figures today than we did before digital tools. Like, I think French curves were, as a, as a tool, like you had to really invest if you wanted in, in curves if you wanted to, to work with them before the digital. Whereas I think today, in some ways, I think it's easier to to work with curves today and in certain platforms that we work with than it is to, to work with, with orthogonal. I mean, I've often heard Sarah Whiting try to distinguish kind of figuration from figural. I think that some of those practices are responsible for, for initially putting figure back on the table. Some will put people like uh, Hayduck back on the table for a lot of people at, at UIC. And questions about the figure were, were really important in that. 
in his practice. I mean, one only has to look at where these these this interest in the figure and its relationship to maybe someone like Greg Lynn's work and the influence there at UCLA. And so a lot of the people who are dealing with figure right now in some way pass through, they either pass through Sarah Whiting, through Greg Lynn, or through Bob Somel at some point. I th and that's why I was saying, I think that some of the, the tools that we use today, the biases of them actually in some ways encourage us to think about figure. Now Laurel, who talks more about legibility and why she's interested in figuration. In a general way, it, it comes out of a similar interest in of why I collect certain types of objects, which if we, I don't know why I think, keep thinking of the pill as an example, it's just a super simple, dumb example, but there is something in the simplicity of a kind of representation of a pill as a blue, half blue and half white ovoid shape. There's a kind of power because there's a kind of instant, instant recognizability of that. And so in my interest in figure, it has to do with a kind of interest in something being recognizable. And in that, the way that it kind of translates to my sort of work with my students is trying to get them to think in both a sort of macro and a micro view of what they're working on. And the figure actually operates in a kind of macro view because sometimes you'll find that students will get very caught up in a kind of additive design strategy and then the whatever the thing is that they're designing just and it's all these small decisions and so for me it's a way of forcing them to create a kind of overview in which to work. We asked Laurel about her tendency to ambiguate the figure in her work in this clip, she's referring to a studio she recently taught with Brendan Muha at USC. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's definitely what I would see. It's what I, a lot of what I do in my own work, and it's also what I try to instill with the students to do. So I remember there was a review that you sat on of a studio that Brendan and I were doing, where I think it was the one where we, we actually gave the students figures of existing architectural pe buildings, pieces, and then they had to, they could not change the figure, but they could change everything about the way that the figure operated on the kind of interior. You know, you could kind of, you could, uh, some of the figures were actually extremely recognizable in terms of the, oh, that's, Venturi's mother's house, except that then if you looked at the project further, there was almost no relationship to what you would have expected the kind of interior workings of the thing were, and that we were in that, I mean, they, the students didn't have to maintain a scale, they didn't have to maintain orientation, they didn't have, but they were just sort of stuck with that figure. I think figure for me does deal a little bit with these with this interest in the legibility of, of something and how one can in, in in a project have certain things where the where the figure produces a kind of 
degree of legibility that, that gives someone access into the, to the project, but then to not, to simultaneously not allow for the, that legibility to kind of, to be the dominant thing. How you defamiliarize the kind of legibility of a figure as well, the kind of approximation of, of a figure or when you put multiple parts together, how those things kind of play out. I think issues of legibility speak really inside of the discipline and how we communicate to one another, but they also are the thing that, that allow people who are outside of it to in, in some way have some layer of access to the, to the work. I think our work is different from how a sculptor or a painter doesn't really I don't think a sculptor or painter has to be concerned with how the work gets re received outside of what the artist's intentions are. I think architecture set itself up as a practice that does negotiate those two sides. This is a good place to return to First Office, who is on the other side of the argument that James just put forward about architecture's need to communicate clearly. We asked them why they take this stance. I think I have a very short answer to that question. I think when I look at work that I would describe as using figures or figuration, there's a kind of immediacy. There's a there's a there's a, a sort of desire to be consumed immediately in that stuff, and it's relatable. And I think our work, at least, I, don't, I think it's a little bit different now in terms of the way we think about it, our audience and the people who look at our work and even the way that we look at our work. But for a long time, there was a desire to be difficult and opaque. And, and, and to sort of allow for people to read more than one thing into the work. And so abstraction is one way to do that. And I think through a kind of minimalism or blankness is a big part of that, where people are forced to project a whole series of other things on it, and it's, which allows for people to understand it in different ways, which allows for us to understand it in different ways, which for, allows for us to present it in different ways at least for a long time, that was that was extremely important to me. And I view that, I don't know if it's in opposition to, but it's certainly different than the way I would understand work that uses something like figuration, which is like a heart. A heart is very different than a black square. And so we, we opted for the black square or a white square in some cases than, than like a red heart. For a few years, a lot of that work, the audience of that work was like me and Anna and maybe one or two other people. And so... Um, there was a kind of pleasure in sorting things out and looking at things from different perspectives. There's a kind of productive potential and things that don't that aren't so readily consumed. Just in having one a conversation with another person, like just between me and Anna or a couple other people. Whereas if you're just drawing hearts, I don't know, I, like that, it, it leads to a very different type of conversation. Perhaps it's also the question: what kind of a question maybe of lineage, what kind of lineage are we interested to take part in? And it seemed like, at least at some point, I was reading Shklovsky, and this was a while ago, actually. Now I feel like everybody's reading the same stuff, which is kind of exciting. But a few years ago, when I picked it up again, and, you know, there is this fam famous passage in Artist Technique where he describes the requirement for the work of art to kind of take an extremely long time, let's say, to understand or to digest, that it requires our attention, simply. And that, that kind of attention would produce, I, I don't know, a kind of a parallel sense of uh, the reality of abstraction to exist in life. That seemed really powerful. And so 
somehow if we can do that in architecture that's quite amazing uh, granted that project in art has happened already a hundred years ago so that essay is from 1917 and at the time it was of course written during the Russian Revolution it had a very political meaning behind it perhaps we lack the politics of that time period today I, I guess the question was kind of how to come back to some of these questions that maybe now can be also understood under the rubric of kind of conceptual conceptual questions of architecture and maybe at the beginning this project was a little bit serious right now I don't think when we look back at our work we think it's serious. We actually think it's kind of funny, but it is within that that kind of structural formwork. The rest of this piece features Ellie and Thomas. We wanted to expand on the conversation from earlier in which they brought up their anxiety about thin two-dimensional work, like Fat Architecture's Blue House, which is a project that Ellie is familiar with because she worked for Fat for several years. I mean, I guess that's why I brought it up. Like, yeah, they're kind of doing... 2D cutouts from MDF because you can't, you know, af afford any kind of more sophisticated materials is one thing, but doing it as a kind of deliberate, you know, move. And that, I mean, I, I'd never heard of a tunable section before, you know, fat. And mm. it's, yeah, it's a strong technique in a, probably nearly all of their projects. And that's not because, you know, they can only afford a bit of MDF to stick on the front or something. It's, you know, it's, it's intent. I think that's quite different, you know, this description of the blue house uh, to to the way in which the we're talking about postmodern references in the work of people today. I think that's to me it felt it, it feels more kind of like an ideological statement or exploration about ideas within architecture, whereas some of these other expressive forms of building feel more like explorations of ornament in a way. It's about patterns and tiles and doing things with bricks and it, that makes me think about kind of like an arts and crafts tradition which we have in the UK. Maybe it's something of that re-emerging. We've, we've always stuck fancy stuff on the front of like not so fancy stuff. That's like <laughs> that's what we've done in lots of different ways. But I guess that the the postmodern mm. technique is a kind of it's not that. It's actually a kind of flattening, a, a deliberate flat flattening of, of of a kind of motif or or, or or narrative or you know idea about a building and using it as decoration, but using it for, formally. I've noticed it a number of private houses that have been completed recently that seem to have a, this sort of homely quality maybe that's brought about through kind of a, an, an additional emphasis on ornament maybe is equally a, a contrast to the austere minimal kind of empty qualities that were championed for a while but the way you're, you're describing or the, the sort of billboard qualities of some of Mm. Uh, postmodernist precedents. I don't. I, I think it would be sometimes it's a bit easy to confuse that with kind of the the assumed stylistic traits of it with the kind of more theoretical pursuits of it as an ideology. And maybe some of the aesthetic qualities of have reemerged, but the reemerged without some of the the criticality 
which maybe the practitioners of the you know, who in the eighties maybe were approaching things. Can kind of project or imagine that there was more of a sense of a linear history, perhaps, where you could respond to things. I don't know, maybe on a, a more sequential movement base basis. Whereas today, I, I just feel like we're you know, submerged under kind of Pinterest um, snapshots of things, which um, pile on imagery and maybe I, I, I don't know. The, I don't know. Maybe there's also a less of a critical discourse in practice to what there was previously. Maybe it depends where you're working and the kind of conversations you're having. But um, I, I think boringly, it's it's to do with clients, it's to do with patronage, you know, it's, it's to do with where the work's coming from. I think that's what's really massively changed since the 60s and 70s. Mm. And, you know, and, and 80s, really. And, you know, it was experimental, it was avant-garde, and, you know, there were people who wanted to still commission kind of experimental avant-garde architecture at that time. And then, you know, and then once it became a kind of fashionable thing, then you know the, the, the big kind of businesses and corporations took over, and that's kind of when it died, and everyone started to find it very distasteful. So you know what I think about how it's back now is it's, it's back as like pure aesthetic now. I don't you know there's nothing there's nothing of the kind of movement or you know its origins. It's the the, the resurgence of it if you know if there is one now is, is purely aesthetic and it, it's just like you say it's a, it's a Pinterest sample it's like ooh you know we, we like that stuff's fun let's do some of that you know let's have some of that in our lounge or you know kind of make a well I don't know I still don't think there's many building commissions <laughs> going on because it's you know it's too fleeting I don't think anyone you know I don't think we're going to see those kinds of commissions again at, at that kind of scale uh, maybe also, it just occurred to me that perhaps something to do with speed of information uh, you know, and transference around the world. That perhaps if you were reading about something in a magazine in the 70s, that you then sort of got to consider for a while and then took back to the office and spent months on the drawing board creating something mm. that. That slower process, and you know that an idea emerges, but actually only two or three people see that idea, and then you know it takes a few years until the building that you've been working on gets built, and then that gets published, and then maybe you know there's a slower kind of spread of, of information to to obviously the, the way in which things are disseminated today, and maybe that slowness in a way allows for more of a criticality towards other things. You've been listening to a conversation on figuration. Interviews were conducted by Joseph Bedford, Kurt Gambetta, Mark Achari, Joanna Grant, and Kevin Pazik between 2014 and 2015. Produced for the third issue of Attention, the audio journal for architecture, in 2016 by Griffin Ofish.